all today. How are you? It's good to be here. Hallelujah. All right. Y'all know that Pastor Luke loves hockey. And about as much as he loves hockey, I loved basketball. And I still remember my, my best game that I ever played, even though it's getting close to about 40 years since I played that particular game. And it wasn't because I was the high scorer in the game. I don't remember it because I was, you know, I had led my team to victory. I remembered it because I was in the zone. And it started about a week before. Uh-oh, that's right, you all are taping this. Let's stay in a place. So I started, good, good, thank you. All right, so a week before, what happens is at my college, the JV team, which I was on, always practiced against the varsity. And for some reason, that particular week, the normal playful Grover was real serious. And the power forward that I was charged with, with guarding was four inches taller than me, and he had a killer hook shot. But I was in the zone. And so I was watching him, and it seemed like I could clearly see every move he was making. He posted me up, and I got in position, and I saw that he made a fake inside, like he was going to go toward the basket that way. He dipped his right shoulder, and then he turned around to take his hook shot. I blocked it, and he was shocked. Well, came back around, he did it again. Dipped his, faked inside, dipped his shoulder, turned to take his hook shot. I blocked it this time, and he was frustrated. Well, three times was the charm. He was gonna get me this time. He was serious like I was serious. But again, he did the same thing. And when I blocked it the third time, he said, Grover, chill, and he pushed me. Well, we had the JV game thereafter, and it seemed like I was still in the space of the zone. The other team members were moving and it seemed like I could tell where they were going so that when they came in the lane and I was on defense, I, got, I, I blocked a shot. Um, or I got a rebound, or I made the good pass, or I, I avoided um, a defender and made a good shot. By the time the game was over, our team had eked out a win. We were in the locker room. And my friend and teammate Jock said to me, he said, man, how many points did you score? I said, I only scored nine. What? It seemed like you scored three times that. He said, man, you dominated that game. But again, I was serious. You know, usually I'd be playing in the air, you know. But 
I just kind of nodded my head. And then the coach called, the varsity coach. He called my name Grover. When I looked up, there was a varsity uniform flying toward me. He had thrown the uniform, I caught it, and he said, suit up, you're gonna be playing with the big boys today. I don't know what has gotten into you this week, but it seems like you are locked in. Now, locked in for me was what made me remember that game, being locked in. And today what I want us to do is I want to talk about being locked in for Jesus and how we get there. All right? But before we do that, let's pray. Great and loving God, you know we love you. That's why we come. We come to worship and to praise your name. And so now what we do is we're going to talk a little bit about being locked in for you. In order to get there, we're going to have to learn a little bit about preaching. And so I pray that you will bless us as we do that learning. We pray this in the name of Jesus and hide me behind the cross and you speak the message you've given. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So the word for preaching in seminary um, quarters is homiletics. It's just a word, if you've heard the word homily, there's some churches that say, we're going to do the homily. That just means uh, the spoken word or, or preaching. And homiletics is the study of the art of preaching. And Paul said a funny thing, and when I was before you the last time, I shared uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21 in the message. I'm just going to share verse 21 now. And it says, since the world in all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust him into the way of salvation. God could have had any variety of means to let us know what's happening and what we need to know in order to walk in the way that he would want us to walk. But one of the things he did was chose preaching to help us understand. Now, there are other ways that we're learning now. You know, we talk about nature and things of that nature, and we can see God there. But preaching has been what God has decided to use. And one of the greatest preachers of the world was the Apostle Paul, who wrote this scripture. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two preachers' homiletic approach. Then we're going to talk about how we become locked in for Jesus. So Paul says this, God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, 
be trivialized into mere words. So what Paul is doing here is he's telling us what his approach is. Now, pastors don't usually do that. Okay, pastors have an approach. When you see Pastor Luke get up, he has an approach. He has something that has, has motivated him to give you a message. So all pastors who come to preach, they have an approach for what they're doing. Now let's kind of break what Paul is saying down. There are three things that he, sh he shares with us here. He shares his objective. He shares his focus. And he shares his concern. Paul's objective is to collect a following for God, not for himself. So his objective is about God. Can I collect this following? Okay, got it. What is his focus? His focus is to keep his message pure and plain. No fancy rhetoric. Okay? All right, so we got his objective, we got his focus. What's his concern? Paul's concern is that the power of the gospel, which is Christ crucified, that means something significant to us, not be obscured by conventional wisdom. Hmm, okay. So, Why do we need to understand Paul's approach? Because there's value in understanding what he's trying to teach us. Paul's approach is not just about preachers preaching. Paul's approach is about us as Christians living a life that preaches a sermon. So you may not be a pastor, as it says, but as a Christian, you're always on stage. Watch this. I heard a story one time about Disney. And what makes Disney work so well is that there is an offstage place for all the characters that are there. So if you're playing Goofy or if you're playing Minnie or if you're playing Mickey, you know, when you're out there in, in, at Disney, you are that character all the way through. You don't get to stop and take a smoke break. We don't smoke. <laughs> you don't get to stop and do this. You have to go off stage in order to do some of those things. If you want to talk and, and it, but when you're, uh, when you're Mickey, you're Minnie out there at Disney, you're on stage. Well, guess what? For us, sad to say it, we're always on stage. We're always on stage. People are watching us. And the bottom line is, if you are not clear about the fact that people are watching you, let me tell you this. Folk are saying things and doing things based on some of the things you do. So for, now I won't go there yet. I won't go there yet. This is what Jesus said about us with regard to being on stage. Okay? How are we to represent Jesus? John 13, 35. The reason I have a lot of slides, y'all, is because I like to make sure we post or we see the scriptures that we're reading. 
And this says, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if we're on stage, what is our on stage persona? Our own on stage persona is that we have to be loving and caring about one another. And we're on stage whether we're here at the church, we're on stage whether we're at home privately, though we're not as on stage as we are when we're here in the church. But we're on stage in our public use of social media and the like. The bottom line is if we're going to use it, we got to recognize that we're on stage. Now, I'm not here to preach to anybody about how you use your Facebook or Instagram, etc. though I'm going to make a few comments about it. But the bottom line is, as a Christian, you're on stage. But anyway, let's talk about Paul's homiletic and the lessons, homiletic and the lessons that he teaches. What Paul is teaching us is that the art of preaching is also the art of drawing people to Christ. That's, okay, and that is not just Pastor Luke's responsibility or Grover's responsibility, that is every Christian's responsibility, okay? And then finally, homiletics is really about being an influencer by living God's love. We got to live this love. Okay. All right. But I didn't just want to look at Paul because Jesus preached too. And Jesus had a homiletic that was very important to us. And what's funny is, is you know, I, I thought about it. How did Jesus preach? You know, what would Jesus do? WWJD? And so I started getting excited. HDJP. You know, how did Jesus preach? And the, the scriptures that Gary so eloquently read, and I'm glad you took your time with it, Gary. Those were, that was the start of Jesus' sermon to the folk. Okay. So how did he preach? Jesus' objective, oh, yeah, we got to do it. Just like, just like Paul, Jesus had an objective. Jesus had a focus. Jesus had a concern. So his objective was to undo the work of false education. What am I talking about? There have been teachers who have said they were Christians, but very much used and behaved, used behavior and taught and talked in ways that were inconsistent with Christ's message and movement. So Christ had to undo a lot of messed up thinking, okay? Now, I was going to post a picture. I'm going to mention it. There's a book that I read called The Miseducation of the Negro. It was written by a man by the name of Carter G. Woodson. He's the father uh, of Black History Month. It was really Black History Week when he started it. 
And that book has a picture of an African-American woman with a piercing gaze, but she has something around her head and a lock on it. And so what happened, what he was doing is he was saying, coming out of slavery, there were certain ways that African-Americans needed to begin to think so they wouldn't have their mind locked up in bad thinking. What Jesus came to do for us was to take the lock off our mind with regard to false education because for a lot of what goes on, you all, we like to think like the world. Many times, and I've heard this a lot in my 30 years of being a Seventh-day Adventist, the bottom line I would hear churches say is what we need as a head elder or what we need as a pastor is we need a business mentality. And the focus is on making sure that we run a church like a business. The church and its prophets and its leaders may have a concern for that. That's true. But the question becomes, is that the objective of the church? So Jesus had to come and he had to undo the work of false education. But Jesus also had to give his hearers a correct view of God's kingdom and God's character. Here's a long one. So how did Jesus preach? Now follow me on this one, you all. Christ disappointed the hope of worldly greatness. In the Sermon on the Mount, the scriptures that Gary read, he sought to undo the work that had been wrought by false education and to give his hearers a right conception of his kingdom and his own character. Yet he did not make a direct attack on the errors of the people. I'm going to read that again. He did not make a direct attack on the errors of the people. He saw the misery of the world on account of sin, yet he did not present before them a vivid delineation of their wretchedness. You know, a lot of people often feel down and depressed because they have not been able to live up to the standard that they expect or that they thought God was laying out. But here, Jesus did not come and do it that way. He didn't come and say, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, and you know, you don't have any hope. That's not how he did it. He taught them something infinitely better than they had known. Without combating their ideas of the kingdom of God, he told them the conditions of entrance therein, leaving them to draw their own conclusions as to its nature. The truths he taught are no less important to us than to the multitude that followed him. We no less than they need to learn the foundation principles of the kingdom of God. So here we have a Jesus who did not come to debate. 
He came to give us a sense of how to get our hearts to the place where we can step into the kingdom graciously. Now that's deep because if we look on social media pages today, and I've seen this for years in our church, Seventh-day Adventism, I've seen this for years. We've got a problem with combating each other's ideas. Not only do we have a problem with combating each other's ideas, we have a problem with trying to make a, a group of people, it doesn't matter what group, feel less than. If you are conservative and people are trying to make you feel as though what you believe is, is, is dead wrong, that's a problem for those people. If you are liberal and people are trying to make you the radical liberal uh, this, that, and the other, like we've heard in all these com commercials, that is wrong. Now, some people say, well, we're just stating the truth. Mm. How did Jesus state the truth to us? What was his homiletic? His homiletic was, I'm not going to debate the ideas. I'm going to talk about this condition right here, the heart condition. Okay. So this is Grover talking here. Jesus did not seek to be a public combatant for the truth. We have a tendency to want to combat certain ideas or values. These are our values. We need to stand for them. It's almost like what we're saying, y'all, is that God needs us to protect him. God needs us to protect him. Now, that doesn't mean we live valueless lives. That doesn't mean we don't stand upon the truths that God has laid out for us. But what it does mean when it comes to us engaging other people, if we have a spirit of saying, you know, I'm stepping into this arena and I'm going to cut this person up because they just do not have the right thinking and I need to be the person to help them understand that, that person should question themselves. That attitude should be questioned on either side. It doesn't matter to me. The attitude that you think that what you ought to be able to do or what you think ought to be easily understood by and should be explained clearly has to be addressed and has to be uh, looked at in the lens of who Jesus was because Jesus did not seek to be a public combatant for the truth. He lived the truth. He didn't look to show people how stupid they were for holding the ideas they held. But I hear a whole lot of people talking about how stupid folk are because they don't believe it the way we have believed it always or the way I think they should believe it on both sides. Though he could have Jesus chose not to call attention to the fact that he possessed superior wisdom. Here we go, y'all. 
we got a lot of folk that think that they hold all wisdom. But see, the problem is, is that most of us, including me, are not locked in. So let me just talk about me for a minute. I did not really get locked in, and I have been in ministry for years now, whether it be for chaplaincy, whether it be social work, whatever. I was not truly locked in until my wife died. Then, because, and I'll tell you the story. So when I was training to be a chaplain, one of the supervisors, and I really love this guy, his name is Doug Watts. And what he said to me one time when I came into his room for supervision, Doug said this. He said, Grover, you know, I'm a white guy and I know you're a black man and I don't know if I have the right to tell you this, but I think you may benefit a little bit from some humility. And of course I got puffed up, what, what, you know, yeah, that's right, you're a white guy, you shouldn't be able to tell me. And this is what happened. What happened for me was I began to realize when I came into the room with my peers, who were all at the time white females, because <laughs> we had five chaplains, I was, you know, one, and all were, were white females. I came with an attitude of hubris and cockiness because when I went upstairs, special things was happening and they weren't, they, they weren't having those kinds of things happen. And so I must have been a great chaplain because of it. And then I ran into a couple of situations in the room where I made some missteps and it became clear, you're not connected to the God that you say you represent. You need my brother to get locked in. So Doug smacked me without even smacking me and helped me understand, brother, you're not locked in and that's what's the important thing, okay? So I just want to talk about Grover, you know. I, I, I'm not talking about everybody else. I was haughty. I had an attitude. I thought that, the, if, that I could not learn from anybody. One of the things that I heard during the debates, and I'm not gonna rail on this, but one candidate said to another, I am not going to uh, accept a lecture on how I was supposed to be, uh, or how I'm supposed to be addressing things. The other thing that Doug taught me was this. If you can't step into a place prepared to learn, thank you, Charles, you've helped me. Charles has helped me with this. If you can't step into a place ready to learn, you've got a problem. And everybody can learn from everybody. I'm gonna tell y'all, I love your children because each one of them have taught me some, some type of lesson if I've interacted with them. Each one of them. Now these are younger folk. I was talking to this baby right here about books that she was reading. And there was a book that she was reading and she was explaining what was going on. And I was like, there's a special kind of commitment she has to really getting to the depth of a story. And I'm a grown tail man. 
And I don't have that. I learned from her how to look at reading when I read for pleasure. But I learned. The question is, y'all, as a church, this church right here, are we prepared to learn from one another or are we going to are we going to advance the idea that we have superior knowledge and wisdom and we don't need to learn from anybody? So we talked about Jesus' objective. He had two. We talked about what they were. What was Jesus' focus? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I read that and read that and read that and read that, and then I finally went to the pen of inspiration. Before I got to the pen of inspiration, I tried to inspire some of my own stuff. Instead of directly attacking the people's errors and faulty ideas, Jesus laid out what condition the people's hearts needed to be in, showing them the conditions for entrance into God's kingdom. Now, y'all have read that before, but I just had to put it in my words. But then here's what the pen of inspiration says about this idea of the poor in spirit. Happy are they, he said, who recognize their spiritual poverty and feel their need of redemption. The gospel is to be preached to the poor, not to the spiritually proud, those who claim to be rich and in need of nothing is it revealed, talking about the gospel, but to those who are humble and contrite. The proud heart strives to earn salvation. Protecting God like he needs our protection. The proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ. Ouch. Our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ, not in the righteousness of our thinking, not in the righteousness of our values, not in the righteousness of our statement about what we think is right. It's all in Christ. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, sorry, he yields himself to the control of God. So why was it that I wasn't humble until my wife died? Because as a husband, there were certain things I needed to do and I needed to make sure. And so I was doing all that in my power. But I thought I was doing the right thing as a Christian man, standing up and leading. But then when I was placed in a situation where that wasn't my good excuse anymore, was I truly locked in to God? Ouch. I didn't know. And it became a situation where I had to begin to start doing little things to reconnect. 
Okay? But watch this. Okay, I'm going to reread a little piece. Um, the Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. But then watch this. Then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. He has unrestricted access to him in whom all fullness dwells. Uh-oh. There's a gift out here. There's a gift waiting for us. The question is, what is it? And will we accept it? Let's see. Jesus' objective was to undo false information and education and also give us a clearer picture of who God is and who God, what God's kingdom is about. That was his objective. His focus was making sure we understood that he is the focus. His concern is that we who carry the name Christian receive the gift of humility. Humility is a gift. Let's go to the word on this one. Why do Christians need humility? But the natural man does not receive things, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Mm. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Pause before I get to the gift. Remember I talked about protecting God? Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We need to stop this thing of talking about we're standing on certain principles because that's what God said and we need to protect those principles. We're not here to protect God. God protects us. We need to understand God as the source and we need to access him as such. Thank you, Jojo. I'm giving you credit again because Jojo told me that last time and she made sure that she reminded me this time. You better be talking about God the source. So we don't have to protect God. God protects us. But watch this. Here's why we need humility. But we have the mind of Christ. Ooh, the mind of Christ. I'm almost done, y'all. Why do Christians need humility? Humility is the truest reflection of the mind of Christ. So I'm going to go to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. This is the first part of it. This is what the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Now I'm reading from the message version because the message smacks you in the face. Think of yourself the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. Yeah, I'm slowing down like Gary. I like that, Gary. Uh, uh, Bob Houchins does this too. I love the way he just slowly reads so you can take anything. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. 
He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became a human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. So the bottom line for us, you all, no matter where we stand on our political uh, situation, is that we've got to be about the business of understanding the need for us to accept the gift of the mind of Christ, which is fully about humility. Because if he, having the status of God, could decide that he's going to come here and be an example for us, there's no way in the world that I can do, that I can't do two things. I can't walk around here acting like I should be high and mighty. And I can't walk around here treating other folk like they should be subject to me. I cannot. That is not where we are. We cannot be there. Because if we believe in this Christ, we must be open to engaging people. I did a Facebook post one time, and I, 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 I messed up on some, a lot of Facebook posts, posts y'all. So I'm getting hit with this, too. But after the first election, I had a lot of my friends talking about, um, yeah, we, ooh, yay, we won, this, that, and the other. And I posted, how deep is your love? Can you, as a Biden voter, abide a Trump voter? One of my friends wrote me back and said, Grover, I'm just not there yet. I said, I'm good with that. I, I hear where you're coming from, but the truth still remains. I got Trump friends. I got Biden friends. I got, you know, Arsaw friends. I've got uh, David Perdue friends. I've got... Uh, uh, you know, the bottom line, y'all, is it is time for the foolishness and the entrenchment and the tribalism to stop. And it's time for us to say, especially, see, this, this is the special place, y'all, because we got both sides of the people right here. But we can't come in here talking about, well, let me help you understand why you're wrong. We can't come in there like that. And we can't let our differences in this matter fracture this church. And that's my worry. We're going to fracture this church because we want to post 
or because we want to say or we want to take on an attitude of superiority, it is time to drop the foolishness because who is superior? Tell me. Who? Who? This is my concluding statement. And I'm, I'm sorry for yelling at y'all. You know I'm, I'm a fun dude. I like, you know. I loved playing basketball and I loved having been locked in on that day because there was so much clarity that I had. And I love y'all because there, each and every one of y'all have touched my heart. Each and every one of y'all have, have helped me understand some things. And I can learn from you all. And there may be some things that I might be able to gift to you. But the bottom line is, is we have got to live the love of Christ. Humility is the gift that locks Christians in. So if you want to be locked in, you got to lock into humility. Humility is the truest truest expression of the power of Christ crucified when our enemy when our every thought and every effort is focused on reflecting the Savior's love as expressed by his sacrifice we will possess an intensity of focus that will make clear to us what the proud will have difficulty seeing more than that, we will draw others to the foot of the cross, not through fancy words, worldly wisdom, or adroit argumentation. Now, isn't that funny I used adroit argumentation? Adroit means skillful. <laughs> I probably should have used a simple word. This is Grover writing. I can't help it. Um, but through showering people with the irresistible love of God. That is what we are here for. If we are not doing that, that is a problem. If we are not demonstrating our love for one another, that is an issue. So, I thank you for the opportunity to speak, and we've got a music, we got some special music coming. After that, I'll come and speak just a little bit more, just a little bit. <laughs>